The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. The scripture reading comes from Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb for us? Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You were looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see them there, just as he told you. They went out and ran away from the tomb, because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone, since they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Alicia, for reading. Please indulge me for just a few minutes on a little bit of an academic exercise, if you don't mind. Um, You notice that our reading of Mark 16 ended with verse 8. So if you have a King James Version on hand, you will not notice any line to mark off the remaining verses or any note of explanation. Now, look, not all the copies of the New Testament that the King James Version is based upon are quite as good as the ones we use now in our more modern versions. The manuscripts of the Greek New Testament we use now to translate and produce the various English modern translations are are more recent. They're better. So most of you see something, I think, in your Bible, something unusual after verse 8. A line probably, and then there's a note there. How are translations better now than, say, they were for the King James translators? Well, um, because they're based on older and therefore more reliable copies. Now, we don't have Mark's actual original papyrus that he wrote his gospel on, which was written some maybe 30 years after Jesus. His gospel, of course, was read and read over and over again in the churches, and copy after copy after copy was made of him, and copies were made of the copies and so on. And we don't even have any of those first copies either. The New Testament is the most copied ancient document in all of the world. And we have thousands of copies of the New Testament. But God did not decide to inspire the copier, only the apostles who first wrote the original document. Now listen, here's the thing. The scribes who copied our New Testament were very meticulous, very careful. But they were not perfect. 99% of any kind of an error in copying is just a misspelling error, just like when we were copying something or writing things down. Now, even in fact, when I was writing the manuscript for the sermon, I was also making some errors in it that I had to go back and check. Um, But there must spellings, and in the Greek, sometimes that can change a verb tense or a noun case or something like that. Somewhere along the line of copying Mark's gospel, someone added verses 9 through 20, what we call the long ending of Mark. It has a few odd remarks that are not consistent with the other gospels, but as you read it, you see it contradicts nothing in the Bible. It also adds nothing to our understanding of Jesus' identity and mission. Why section off this long ending of Mark and and give a note about it? 
Because in order to be as careful as we can be, we don't want to base our Bible on any copy differences that seem to have come along a little bit later in the copying process, rather than be closer to the time of the original writing. So copies that seem to appear to be uh, after the older copies or have a change that appears in just a small number of the copies is usually omitted or it's sectioned off with a special note. It's actually more complicated than all of this, but it demonstrates that Karen copying and translating is very careful. Why would a devout scribe add these words? We can't know for sure. It's possible that the scribe felt dissatisfied with Mark's kind of ending, kind of abrupt ending at verse 8, compared to what Matthew, Luke, and John say, which is a much, much more detailed description of what happened after Jesus' resurrection. And when you know something about Jesus' resurrection from the Bible, it's usually from Matthew, Luke, and John, and not from Mark. This sort of makes sense then that somebody might feel like they needed to add something. Now look back again at Mark 16, 8. They went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. That would make the the last word in Mark's gospel the word afraid. Well, the women made a hurried beeline straight for the disciples and didn't stop to tell anyone else along the way what they saw. The words fear and afraid and astonished are used almost 20 times in Mark's gospel. He likes to talk about that. How encouraging would it be to the new church to have the good news in Mark's gospel end with the word afraid? Let me tell you this. This is how I think you should think. The long ending of Mark does not contradict anything in the other gospels. There's not a problem there. It also does not add anything to make us wise for salvation. No theology is completed by the long ending of Mark. Perhaps whatever Mark wrote, if anything, is is long gone. But perhaps Mark meant to end his gospel abruptly. Almost as a challenge to respond. Yes, Jesus' resurrection may seem astonishing, but what will you do with the Jesus who died is now alive? Will fear be your permanent response? Or you contemplate what a triumphant king is demanding of you? Well, let's just move on here. And I want you to think about something because though the story of Christ's resurrection is precious and talked about over and over again in Christian churches as it should be, maybe there's a time for a fresh look at things, a closer look or a magnified look at things. Italian astronomer, mathematician, and uh, Christian, Galileo Galilei, that, that guy, he took the telescope really in some ways for the first time and, and aimed it up at the stars and at the planets. Whereas mostly telescopes were used for navigating the seas and things like that, he said we should get a better look at the solar system out there. And, and so what he looked at, what was far, far away, which got closer because of a telescope, has really changed the way that we look at astronomy and the solar system and all kinds of things like that. It's really a monumental things that he saw. A few years later, the Dutch lens maker, Anton van Leeuwenhoek, he took those same sorts of lenses, although they were smaller, and he went in the opposite direction, and he, he looked at things that were too small to see. 
He looked at literally every single body secretion that there was. He looked at every kind of water, pond water, lake water, sea water, sewage water, anything to see what was invisible to the eye or too small to see. And he drew pictures of them and that opened up another world too. So Galileo opened up that world and von Leeuwenhoek opened up the world that was unseen to our eyes. And so we got a fresh and better picture of the reality of the world. You know, we've been looking at the moon since God created humans. That's a long time. We have always seen the exact same side of the moon until I was eight years old. That was the first time we saw the other side of the moon. Again, with space technology and rocketry and things like that, we were able to see a better picture of that famous object that we've been looking at for a long time. Now, can I present to you this morning just a fresh and maybe more magnified picture of the resurrection of Christ and with the intention that you would, you would be encouraged by that and not just encouraged but actually maybe strengthened to do more for Christ based on his resurrection. So I would give you and offer you this morning five perspectives of the resurrection. They're the perspectives of Satan, the human body, that's your body, Jesus, God, and the perspective of the church. I think maybe with a better perspective, you may be motivated to live not mediocre lives and certainly not sad lives and depressed lives, but really motivated lives, triumphant lives, to be more hopeful and more bold and more prepared for death, yes, death, or the second coming of Christ. So first, here's Satan's perspective, which is failure and defeat. I've always asked this question for a long time. What does Satan, the devil, know? He's the father of lies, but what does he know to be true? He was there at the beginning, maybe before the beginning, we could even say. He appears as the serpent in the Garden of Eden, confronting Adam and Eve with lies. You can be all that you want to be without God, he says. For this, God reveals to Satan right away what his doom is going to be. Yes, you will continue to bite the heel of Eve's offspring. But the offspring of Eve will eventually crush your head. Apparently at John and Allie Evanson's house, their new property, there's a lot of snakes. Just wanted to forewarn you before you take the invitation, including copperheads. Allie told me that when confronting a copperhead, she goes straight for the shotgun, which seems like a very sensible way to deal with a copperhead. John apparently doesn't want to take the time to go back into the house to get the shotgun. He just takes a shovel and he cuts the head off. Now, I would advocate for Allie's method of killing a snake, but John's method of chopping the head off a snake is a little bit more poetic and a little more theological, and so I kind of like that too. But I'm still going with the shotgun. Since the Garden in Eden, Satan seemed to be able to keep his head on. So we have to confront him every day. I get that. He's tried to disrupt God's plan through war and famine and disease and slavery and idolatry and death. He must have been thrilled when God destroyed the world with a flood, except that not everyone died. Satan has always targeted Eve's offspring, um, Abraham, and then Abraham's offspring. He must have hoped that Abraham would kill Isaac, but he didn't. He must have hoped David would be killed by Saul or by Goliath or one of David's sons, but they didn't. 
Then Satan tried to kill Mary's little son, Jesus, and he failed. And he failed to cause Jesus to sin. And he tried to have Jesus crucified. Hey, did he think he succeeded? I've always wanted to know this. Seriously, did Satan want Jesus to be crucified? Did he not know that this was the sacrifice, to end all sacrifices, the death that brought about atonement for sins? And if Satan thought the death of the Son of God was some victory for him, did Satan really think Jesus would stay dead? I ask the question again, what does Satan know? How can you dwell with the glorious, eternal, perfect, holy God at some time in the past and possibly think that you could win if you rejected him? How could the devil think that Jesus could stay dead? I don't know. I don't know what he thought. When Jesus sent out the 72 disciples for a short mission trip, they came back rejoicing, the Bible says, and saying to Jesus, we cast out demons in your name, Lord Jesus. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. When Jesus cast out a demon one time, he declared that there's no way to rob a house of its treasures unless you first tie up or bind up or, or chain the strong man of the house. He said that if the strong man, Satan, has been bound, and clearly he was because the demon came out, he said then the kingdom of God has really come in himself. Satan, you guys, has been defeated at the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Let's just say it this way. Satan's body, so to speak, will be disposed of at the final judgment. But he is defeated. As saved people, God's elect, you represent the defeat of Satan. It, if you're ever thinking why I'm, I'm kind of off to the side in our gatherings and I'm watching you and looking over you, I'm thinking so many things, but it's the joy of my life to look at all of these people like I'm doing right at this very instant have been redeemed and rescued from Satan. You are yourself proofs of Satan's defeat. And I see that. I don't know what you're looking at, but I'm looking at these transformed lives. I say to myself, before you were saved, you were dead in trespasses and sins. I have heard your testimony of your life lived before Christ, and now I see this change. You know, you want to see a miracle? People want to see miracles. Even Christians want to see a miracle. Why don't you just look in the mirror? That cannot happen. Unless Satan is defeated, which happened at the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Colossians 2, 13 through 15 says this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Listen to me. Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's a past event that is still effective today. Disarmed, shamed, triumphed over. Eddie Shavola, one of our members, you can always know you're at his car because the license plate says Satan 
hater. Now, that's the sort of thing that a former Marine might put on their license plate. I don't really myself have the guts to do that. But the reason why Eddie can put Satan hater on there is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because Satan is defeated. How significant is this? Well, the Bible says this is amazing. The Bible says this, resist the devil and he will flee from you. All because of Christ's resurrection. Here's the body's perspective. It's broken, but fixable. God told Adam to never eat from one particular tree in the Garden of Eden. He said to them, the day that they eat it, they will surely die. This doesn't mean that during that day they will fall over dead, but that in eating the fruit on the day of disobedience, you will surely know that you will die. A spiritual death began immediately, and a physical death began also. They disobeyed and they ate. Spiritual death has been solved in the grace of God through faith in God. God told Adam, you will return to the ground. You are dust. You will become dust again. Physical death so far has never been solved by the medical world. How gracious, though, is God in remembering all of that? Listen to Psalm 103, 14. He knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. You guys, God hasn't forgotten that. He knows that. He knows what we're made of exactly. He knows what the curse was. He knows the trouble it is to live in this world. And he's, he's aware of that. God does not forget our brokenness and frailty. God knows what a little virus can do. That teeny little thing, he knows what that can do. He knows what a backache feels like. He knows what a backache, a sore back can just level you out for a day or a week. He knows that. God understands the misery of a migraine. He knows we get tired. But we're so prone to sin that God generally terminates life before we reach that 100 mark. Often very, very before that. Every once in a while you hear of someone who's 100 or even older than 100, and we're kind of amazed at that, but we're secretly saying to ourselves, I hope I never live that long. Right? I mean, not in this kind of frail body. That's how we think. James 4.14 says, What's your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. But the human body is good. Not just the soul, but the body is worth saving. Not, let's just scrap this whole body idea since it's weak and frail and it's going to die and exist as spirits eternally. No, no, not at all. Hebrews 10.5 says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Jesus came in a body, died in a body, and his body was resurrected. Because the body is a good thing, God is not interested in moving to a completely different plan. He's interested in restoring it and, re and reviving it and resurrecting it. He's interested in redeeming the body just as God did for Christ's body. And that's exciting. Here's 1 Corinthians 15, 20. And you've heard this before. Listen to this again. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Then he goes on to say, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterwards at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Death and the grave have no victory because we're going to be raised with new bodies. 
And the funny thing is that they're the same and not the same. And I don't understand that. And I'm not going to get any more insight from the scriptures, but it's the same body and yet it's not the same body. And I'm okay with accepting that. The main thing is it will be incapable of deterioration or sickness or pain. So whether it's the world's sinfulness, which I know is bugging you to death, me too, or the doctor's diagnosis, which you've already gotten or you're going to get someday, I don't need to live in fear or dread or anger and depression. 1 John 2.17 says, The world is passing away with all its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Here's Jesus' perspective, authority and fulfillment. If you can summarize the problem of, of Jesus' opponents his entire life, you'd have to say in one word it was about his authority. Nothing has changed today. Even I struggle to accept Jesus' authority, over, especially over the details of my life. Isn't that awful? Don't you think that's awful that I struggle with that? I confess that I often pick and choose what things Jesus has authority over me. What is, what's wrong with me? We're all still struggling with Jesus' authority in our lives. Ten times we've read the word authority in Mark's gospel. Jesus has authority to teach, to, to interpret scripture, to heal on the Sabbath. He has authority to cast out demons. He has authority to forgive sins. He also has authority to die how and where and when he chooses. And he has authority to rise again from the dead. Listen to this magnificent verse, John 10, 18. I lay down my life to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. Over and over again, Jesus proclaimed to his, to his contemporaries, um, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And that's just exactly what happened, what he said. Only someone with supreme authority can say, I will die as I choose, when I choose, where I choose, and I'll even pick out who is the one who kills me. Then I'll come back, and you're all going to bow the knee to me. Now that's someone with authority. Can you imagine a basketball player? A basketball player whose team is down by three points. Stay with me here with the pointing, okay? He's down by three points. Five seconds left, but his team has the ball. They call a timeout. During the timeout, this player goes over to the other team at their timeout and says, I want you to know something right now. After this timeout, I will get the ball in the right corner, not the left, the right one. I'm going to shoot a three-pointer. You will follow me. I will make the three-point shot. Then I will hit the free throw, and we will win the game. Pretty cool, right? Pretty audacious, incredible thing to say. But imagine someone with the authority to say that. This is how we're going to win the game, even though we're behind. I'm going to do exactly this. In the history of our salvation, Jesus is not a passive participant. He's the active authority over the whole of history, including his death and resurrection. This whole business about our victorious Savior and this death and resurrection was planned before the world began. It happened just exactly when, where, how that Jesus said it would happen. And its consequences are yet in the future, and we're going to all experience that. It will absolutely happen just exactly like Jesus said it's going to happen. Here's the thing. 
even though he's gone now, his physical absence from us does not mean his authority is gone. Matthew 28, 18 says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So then he said, now you go, because I have that authority. You go and make disciples. Jesus is pleased to give his authority through the Holy Spirit to turn people into Jesus' followers. His authority to, to rise from the dead is now ours to go on boldly in this world and proclaim the gospel. Now, this is the problem that I think grieves his heart that his children, who he told has his authority, is walking through life, acting as if you had no authority. There is little boldness in our faith and in our praying, in our sharing the gospel. There's little boldness. There's little confidence when we hear the doctor talk or say something when we look at the newspaper or the news. We've lost our confidence when, in fact, we have great authority given us by Christ. Fourthly, here's God's perspective. It's justification and success. Romans 4, 23. Now, this phrase, it was credited to him, was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It's clear from the Old Testament that God's son Messiah would be offered up. He'd be delivered up as a sacrifice for our sins. And so then in this way, Jesus becomes our sins. But if Jesus stays dead, then the sins that he bears truly become his sins. They stick with him. It's as the apostle Paul said, if Christ is not raised, then we're all dead in our sins. But in resurrection, Jesus' righteousness is proclaimed. God is saying, my son is righteous, and I'm accepting that sacrifice. Jesus is truly righteous, not sinful. For us, that means that his righteousness can be credited to us. We're now righteous or justified in Christ. I like that. I like for for, for the penalty of my sin to be removed from me and Christ's righteousness to be credited or transferred to my account. I like that a lot. What this means is that something has been reversed. Something has been restored. And this brings us back to the beginning again. You see, what was lost for all of us through Adam is gained in Christ. We're back in fellowship with God. We have access to Jesus again, the tree of life. Our knowledge of good and evil is God's knowledge of good and evil. So what was a failure in Adam is now success by God in Christ. What is Satan's failure? What is is just God's success? God's plan to rescue sinners has worked. And the resurrection of Jesus didn't just resurrect Jesus, rescue Jesus from the grave. All of us have been rescued from the grave. Never mind about that dumb little thing called death which might happen to us. It means nothing. It just goes like that and you're with your Savior. And then you're going to get a body back. What is it? It's really nothing. We have eternal life. Lastly, the church's perspective. Witness and proclamation. And here is where we get to our challenge for what we need to be doing. Mark mentions just three women at the empty tomb. Luke indicates that there were at least five women to see the empty tomb. That's at least five unlikely witnesses to the absence of the body of Jesus. Now look, the Christian faith is a historical religion. Among the many things that our faith is, it is a historical religion. It happened within space-time history. That is this this thing that happened with Jesus Christ. It was witnessed by eyewitnesses. It's a historical religion. 
Let's see. What's the opposing story to the story of Jesus' resurrection? Are you aware that you have a rival to your story, to your gospel? Are you aware that there's some other stories out there about what happened to Jesus? They, they're, they're really simple. In summary, the story is it did not happen. Jesus did not rise from the dead. That's the rival story. That's the alternative that we don't believe. It comes in several versions. Here's one version. Jesus never died on that cross. No, he almost died. You know, those Romans, they don't know anything about killing people or crucifixion. So they kind of messed up. He almost died. And then what happens? They took his body down. His breathing is so shallow. They bring him into the dark, cool, restful tomb. He got his breath back. Um, and then he just sort of revived, and, then, and I don't know how he was able to put that stone away, but somehow he got out. And then later he died again. That's one version. Another version is Jesus died and was buried, but no one knows what tomb he was buried in. Never mind that eyewitnesses went to the tomb to, to see where they bury the body of Jesus. Never mind that it was owned by Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy and well-known person who was still alive when anybody could have made up any lies. He would just said, nope, I know where my grave is. Everybody knows where my grave is. There's nobody in there. That's why you're not going there because there's nothing to see. So there's no empty tombs is what people said because he's not there. The women, maybe, maybe the women went to the wrong tomb. Here's the third version. Jesus died and was buried, but someone took his body out before the women got there. Of course, that's the oldest rival story, and there's no record that anyone believed it. In fact, there's no record in the annals of history that anybody believed any of the versions of the rival story. The problem with all of the rival stories is the problem of eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses saw the tomb in which Jesus was buried. Eyewitnesses saw the tomb empty, Eyewitnesses saw Jesus over and over again after his burial. Alive, eating, speaking. Paul wrote this maybe about 25 years after the fact from 1 Corinthians 15. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, Paul says, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. First Corinthians is one of the first books of the New Testament written before any of the gospels were even written. That was the record of people and nobody could deny it because the people that saw Jesus alive were living and walking around. At least most of them were. Now, Monday night, just less than a week ago, the elders had a meeting in the office. And Monday night was, that, it was when that thunderstorm occurred. When we got to the office, we sort of briefly described, discussed the thunderstorm that just happened. And we were not all in the same place when the storm happened, but we were all in Wake County. And, and then we met together and, and we just talked about it briefly. Um, some said that there was a downpour. I didn't see a downpour. It just rained at my house a little bit. Some said it was a downpour. Others said it only rained a little. One mentioned thunder. One said he saw many fallen tree branches on the ground. We all had different experiences, but no story contradicted the other. They were just renditions of the exact same thing. We all agreed that we saw a thunderstorm. And meteorologist Tom Miners predicted it would happen. And it happened. 
Nobody thought another person was lying any more than you think I'm lying right now, even though you know that I'm not perfect. Why does a person invent a lie? Not only is the Christian gospel something of historical intention that we can study through the lenses of history, but we can also study a little bit through psychology and sociology. We can ask the question, well, if it's a lie, why do people tell lies? Why do people believe lies? Why does a person invent a lie? Why do they tell the lie to others and convince them to lie with them? Why do large numbers of people believe the lie? Why do all the liars agree to stick to the same rendition of the lie all the way to their painful deaths? Why? The main implication of the rival theories about Jesus' resurrection is that all these eyewitnesses are liars. They've made up a story that they know is not true. For what reason? What is gained? Tom told his teacher that his mother was taken to the hospital. The teacher found out that this was not true. Tom told a lie. Why? Tom had a test that day that he did not study for. Does that sound familiar? That's the reason Tom told the lie. He wanted to avoid consequences of not preparing. He wanted to gain more time. That's why he lied. Jews telling a fellow Jew, listen carefully to me, Jews telling a fellow Jew that Jesus is God's son, equal to Jehovah, died for sinners as God's final sacrifice, came back to life three days later, I mean in a physical body walking around, that lie comes with consequences. This testimony comes at a cost. And then if you get the Roman government involved, the cost is even higher. So why lie? Well, the angel at the empty tomb told the women to go tell the disciples, tell what you know. You don't have to know everything, just go and tell. It's the simplest of instructions. What did you see? Go and tell what you saw. Here's the essence of the Christian mission. Here's the thought that's supposed to dominate much of your thinking. Who can I tell what I know to be true? Now, how often does that thought come to you? <laughs> Daily, weekly, monthly? Like the reason why you wake up in the morning is to think, now, who can I tell what I know to be true? Instead, it's usually almost always something else that we're thinking about that dominates our day. The church is the witness to the living Savior, Jesus Christ. The actual witnesses, eyewitnesses, they're long gone, obviously. You're a witness to a huge amount of evidence, though, you guys. Christianity, for instance, makes sense. It does. It makes sense. It has an answer for all the most basic, important questions of life, like origin meaning destiny. It names your guilt. It literally tells you exactly why you feel guilty. And it states the means for forgiveness of guilt. You guys, you Christians, have been released from your guilt, right? You have meaning and hope. You're a witness to this. You're a witness to many, many lives radically changed. They're... they're in the auditorium right now. Are you not listening to people's testimonies about how they came to faith in Christ? It's this radical transformation. Now, there's got to be a reason for it. You're even a witness of people who continue to die for Jesus. I mean, you may not have seen it with your own eyes, but people are literally dying 
for Jesus Christ. Now, what is the explanation for that? There's consequences to believing something. And if it's a lie, we'll stop and think, I don't think I'm going to tell that lie. I, I might die. And yet people keep on doing it. When I attend Sunday gathering, my community group, my discipleship groups, I continually see people who seem so transformed. It just amazes me. I believe what they say about their former life. And, and then I see the image of Christ in them. So there's nothing in any psychology class I ever took to explain this. There's not. When you and I see the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, more clearly, with greater magnification, I'm offering. We want to step in line with the women. Just get right behind them. And with all the disciples in Jesus' life, proclaim that Jesus is very alive and he is Lord and that he gives eternal life to those who believe. So if someone ever asks you, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? The answer is not yes. The answer is, of course. Why wouldn't I believe that? Pray that this summer you witness to the power of eternal life in Jesus to anyone you will be with. What should you say? Just say what you know. That's all. If you're here and feel that you have no real meaning or real hope, that you still bear guilt over your sins, you should come to Jesus, the living Savior, today. And we would be thrilled to talk to you about that after this service. Pray with me this morning. Father, thank you for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who died for us is living again and interceding for us. We thank you for that. We are asking for a transformed thinking because of the truth of that. That is, Lord, that we, we live with more hope and with more confidence, that we, we tell other people with great confidence and joy what we know, but that we're not worried so much about our health or diagnosis of the doctor, and certainly, Lord, that we don't fear death. We pray for that, that it would mean something and change our lives this week. We're also praying, Father, for anyone who walked in here this morning who's just, just not sure, still thinking, not trusting, not believing, that you would bring them to faith in the Lord Jesus today, that they would have the courage to come and talk to us about that. We pray that in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.